Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know this morning that we look at, at an event which occurred almost 3,000 years ago, a historical event, and so we ask uh, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the enduring truths of events so long ago. We want to pause and just thank you for the folk who have recorded this event, have recorded the theological truths uh, that they witnessed, observed, and we thank you for those who translated it into the language or a language that we can understand, uh, learn from and grow in our praise and worship of you. We pray that you'd be with us as we begin our series in Daniel and that you would walk us through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will in a moment read uh, the entire chapter of chapter one. I've got my device now because I'm finding that... uh, I'm struggling to see words in my Bible now. My eyesight's fading a bit, so I've actually got my device. Um, For those who are following me and continuing the series, um, it might be good for you to actually... So we're looking at a chapter each week. Now, we're finishing at chapter 6 of the book of Daniel because in chapter 7 there's a change in the the type of genre or literature. Uh, It goes from historical... uh, to what's called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is very, very difficult to interpret and to understand. And um, look, I just thought it'd be too difficult to carry on past six, so we'll stop it. We'll stop at six. Um, yes, I would encourage you, though, if you want to go beyond chapter six, uh, do so, but get yourself a very good commentary uh, because apocalyptic literature has lots of imagery, uh, figurative language, comparative language, and things like that, which makes it difficult to try and put into. I guess, uh, literal terms and ways we can understand it. But it is certainly part of God's word and I encourage you to wrestle with it. So let's have a look at Daniel chapter 1. I'm also going to look at Psalm 137 a little bit later. But follow along with me as we read uh, Daniel chapter 1. So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his gods in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his god. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine and wine from the king's table. There they were to be trained for three years, and after that uh, they were to enter in the king's service. Among those who were chosen from uh, were chosen were some from Judea, or Judah, sorry, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief, of, chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego, or Abednego, however you pronounce it. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official 
for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord my king, who has assigned you, you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for seven days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. These four young men God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, a chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. I don't know how you feel about the stolen generation. That is the stolen generation of indigenous children. And if we did a survey here, we'd probably get a wide spectrum of opinions. But even if you allow for the fact that many children were placed into better physical physical conditions, there's still something troubling or something brutal about uprooting children and taking them away from their mothers or their families, their land, their homes. And when you read their stories, it's not hard to react emotionally. Unfortunately, if we survey history, we find many stories of stolen generations. And in this morning's text, we actually have one of those examples. We have the march to Babylon from, of the Israelites. It's about 586 BC and Daniel's world falls apart. He is probably a teenager at this time when the Jews from Judah are taken from their land into captivity. In 722 BC, the northern part of Israel had been taken captivity by the Assyrians. And it was inevitable that Judah was to follow because idolatry, immorality, injustice plagued their society. They had ignored the warnings of the prophets for too long. In fact, they had essentially slaughtered them to silence. The prophet Isaiah called Judah to change its ways or end up in the same predicament as your northern cousins. The people of Judah never listened or they did not respond. They ignored the call of the prophets and they lived out this their blessed election because they had a strong inner conviction that punishment by exile would never happen to them. They believed that they were a special people, a covenant people, protected by God based on promises of the past. And I mean, you can understand why they think this way. The visible sign of God's protection was the temple in Jerusalem. This temple had the Ark of the Covenant in it, the commandments from Moses. God's very presence is found 
in the temple, a place referred to by pre-exile prophets as the home of the Lord. Furthermore, God had made, or Yahweh had made promises to their forefathers that they would continue to be blessed. Moreover, their God was the one true God, the all-powerful God of heaven and earth. There was no way any other nation could beat him or their gods could beat him. Their gods were no match. And all that was ultimately true. But it did not absolve them of the responsibilities towards God and towards others. Their downfall is they mistakenly believe God was appeased by their religious life, their religiosity. I mean, these people were very religious. They continued to fulfill all the religious duties. They went to the synagogues. They went to the temples. They quoted God's law to one another. But at the same time, they spurned the law of God's love towards others and towards God, forgetting that God actually looks at the heart and not the outward appearance of things. They had a false confidence in God and the result was the Babylonians invaded them and marched them off as slaves. You can imagine this terrible scene. The Jews looking back over their shoulders at their beloved city, Jerusalem, besieged and gutted, their temple destroyed. Their king Jehoiakim uh, remains but has no power. He is simply a role, he plays the role of a puppet for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who in his first 12 months took Jerusalem and ruled for another 42 years. You can imagine the loaded cart that was ahead of the slaves. The first deportation, Daniel and his friends, the cream of the crop of Judah's wealth, marching from their homes, the precious and sacred temple objects carted off in front of them in the hands of pagans who worship other gods. You can imagine their faith was shattered. I mean, where was God in all this? Surely God was in control. I want to read you Psalm 137 because this psalm was actually written by those captives and it captures something of how they were feeling at the time. It's only a short psalm, but let me read it to you. You might, might recognise the words from an old song. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remember Zion, that's Jerusalem. There on the polars we hung our harps, for there our captives asked us for songs. Our tormentors demand songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord? Well, in a foreign land. If I forget you, Jerusalem, my right hand forget its skill. My tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, when the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us today. Happy is, listen to his words, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes their heads upon the rocks. Isn't that language? 
Even in the language, it shows us how far they are away from God. How could you say of another people group, may God take your children and dash their heads against the rocks like you have done to us? That gives us some, a bit of insight. Now it is true that absolutely at the end of Daniel we will see that God would prove to be faithful to his promises and would prove himself to be the God of heaven and earth. However, he wasn't content to leave his people with this false confidence concerning their disobedience and sin apart from their religious responsibilities. It was hypocritical. It was not religious practice Practices, however punctiliously performed, that mattered. But rather, as Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That, I believe, was the fundamental lesson the Jews of Judah had to learn at that time. We are Christians. We are recipients of a new covenant. We are now in covenant with God based on grace and not the law, which is vastly different to that of the Old Testament. The central lesson of the exile, however, remains true and could be summarised simply as or a simple statement that spiritual privileges bring genuine responsibilities. Christians can come to church, celebrate their acceptance before God. We can celebrate every Sunday. We can go to church events throughout the week. We can sing about God's compassion and his mercy and yet be just as hypocritical throughout the week by not demonstrating such qualities as justice, Mercy and humility. George Barnard Shaw, the great writer, says, What a perfect person believes may not be ascertained from his creed. What a person believes may not be ascertained from his creed, but from the assumption on which he or she habitually acts. In other words, our theology is not what we say it is, but rather what we are up to. Even though Christians stand in God's grace, we can be sure that God will not rest with an insincere or a two-faced community who represent him. As a father, he will seek to refine and reform its thinking and its behaviour to bring about a more congruent witness to the community. Over the next few weeks, we will be focusing on chapters 1 to 6 of Daniel unpacking this difficult but necessary lesson that spiritual privileges bring genuine responsibility. We're going to have a short break for Easter though. Don't worry about that. And then we'll get back into Daniel after Easter. But really chapter 1 is about Daniel's wisdom and confidence in God. Daniel tells us when they arrive in Babylon, they were immediately segregated into groups. Daniel is placed with young men, it says, handsome, intelligent, full of promise and potential. 
They were then introduced to a man named Aspenaz, who was a chief official and assigned to work in the king's civil service, which must have been initially somewhat odd. I can imagine when they were marched off to Babylon, they may have been thinking about their history in Egypt and the slavery that their people endured. And all of a sudden, they're given service to the king. But Nebuchadnezzar is a clever man. He is a very wise leader, assimilating these men, this cream of the crop, into civil service, giving them responsibility and power rather than crude enslavement. It made a lot of sense. It would have been actually militarily impossible for the king to sustain his campaign over other conquered nations unless the captives could be kept loyal to him. And this program of assimilation was very intense. Days and nights were spent studying the Babylonian language, their literature, lessons in mathematics, science, navigation, politics, history, geography, and astrology. The young Israelites must have have thought their past, their beliefs, their faith, their very identity is slowly being erased. They even give them new names that incorporate pagan gods. Daniel, which means God is judge, is changed to Belteshazzar, which actually means keeper of hidden treasures of Baal. The question is, would they remain true and loyal to God, to Yahweh, to what they knew to be right, or would they relent and become one with their new world? I mean, what would you have done? You're exiled to another nation. You are chosen to dine from the king's table. The best food, the best wine, education, the best education. I mean, it sounds pretty good when you think about it. I guess even as Christians, it can be difficult to stand firm when we are constantly bombarded day and night to change our thinking and our allegiance. The same offer of pleasure, power and comfort seeks to constantly entangle us and change our thinking and consequently our behaviour. So what was Daniel's secret? I'm told that when they train Leader dogs for the blind, it's a real study in patience. Those who know tell us that dogs who are to be the seeing eyes of their blind masters must undergo this rigorous training. And the greatest difficult, the most difficult thing for them is to raise the eye levels of the, of the dogs to their blind masters. The greatest difficulty lies in lifting the seeing level of the dog to an adult several times taller. Because what might normally go unnoticed by the dog could be an object of grave danger to an adult. Daniel's secret is to change or grow his perspective or vision of God. Despite the outlook, God is still in control. Daniel realises that God's not limited to a building. He's not limited to a particular location. He cannot be represented like other gods with man-made temples and golden lavished items. It's not his thing. 
Daniel understands, even as a teenager, that God is incomparable. He is unique. He is all-powerful. And thus, Daniel wrestles with one of the most difficult experiences, I think, of the Christian faith, trusting in the sovereign purposes of God. W.G. Evans writes, listen to his words, he says, God must reserve for him the right to initiative, the right to break into my life without question or explanation. That shattering phone call, that disturbing letter that may indeed be the first stage of God's interruption in my life. Since God does the initiating, he must be responsible for the consequences. They are incredible words. We must reserve for him the right of initiative to break into my life without question or explanation. That is a difficult part of faith. A very difficult part of faith. To have complete trust in God despite the circumstances you end up in. That's incredibly difficult. And it's not really, even during that time, a search for answers, but it's actually wrestling with the questions. But the depth of relationship with God goes beyond simply memorising creeds or parroting beliefs. Faith relationship is actually, I think, wrestling with the big questions. Waiting patiently for perhaps answers to gradually unfold for you, which may not even be in this life. But that relationship is a dynamic one. We would love to have all the answers during those most difficult times. But that's not what faith is about. Faith includes wrestling, wrestling, wrestling in our relationship with God during those times. And that is really, really difficult to do at times. But we see the sovereignty of God right from the outset of Daniel. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Jerusalem didn't fall merely because Nebuchadnezzar was this powerful great leader. God gave victory to this foreign king. Verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into the favour and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. It was God who granted Daniel favour when he asked permission to have his diet changed. Verse 17, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding of all visions and dreams. God gave them the knowledge. Like when I was in Bible college and we had an Old Testament exam. We had this theology that God provides the knowledge we need and the lecturer said, would someone like to pray before we begin? Someone said, yes. One of the students said, I'd love to. He prayed, God, you created out of nothing. Please do the same this morning for us. But God gave Daniel this wisdom and his friends the wisdom. There is courage to say no when we as Christians realise the sovereignty of God and are determined to stick to our boundaries. In verse 8 it says, Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. The word proposed there means he considered wisely. 
He thought about it. And we will see that Daniel is a wise and prayerful man. Daniel and his friends were pretty much given all the pleasures of the kingdom. They were being groomed for the royal palace, which sounds great. I guess many of the Jews would possibly have jumped at this opportunity, but Daniel, not Daniel, he throws a spanner in the works, not impulsively, he weighs up, he considers, he prays, and he purposes in his heart where to draw the line. Before consuming their food, the Babylonians would often uh, sacrifice to their gods a portion of the food and the drink and anyone who actually participated in that meal. That's why Daniel says, that's not for me. So he drew a line. He said, I'll just have vegetables. Well, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? (laughs) And water. Even worse, particularly for my wife. Vegetables probably didn't come from the king's table. Some things he was prepared to do, others he was made it pretty clear was not. But this is what Daniel does. He doesn't withdraw completely from this different world that he finds himself in but does draw the line in many instances, and we'll see as we go through Daniel. Yes, he's being trained for royal service, and he graduates with honours. He's placed in a position of leadership until the very end of the Babylonian Empire. That's incredible. Without losing his faith in God or his heritage in a foreign land, even when placed in dangerous positions, he remains faithful and courageous. We will learn that it becomes a testimony not only to his people in this foreign land but also to King Nebuchadnezzar himself who says of Daniel's God that he is the God of gods. He does as he pleases with power, with the powers of heaven and with the people of the earth. Even Nebuchadnezzar is somewhat converted towards the end through Daniel's testimony. And I think as a people of God, somewhat 3,000 years later, We need to follow Daniel's example. Think about this culture and decide as Christians where we are going to draw the line. Romans 14 speaks about that. But we are to let the life and teachings of Jesus fill our minds, rule our hearts and direct our feet. Amen. Thank you.